You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, it's Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast, and we've got a special guest today. We've got Ian Bezik. Ian is a very prolific writer on Seeking Alpha. He's written about a thousand articles now. He's got Ian's inside insider corner and he's got what 20,000 or so followers on that particular site he's also writing elsewhere a little bit of background on Ian he graduated from Colorado State worked as an analyst for Carousel Capital in, in New York which is an activist hedge fund and then has spent the last several years in Latin and South America currently in Colombia where he has family there so Anyway, Ian, I want to just first say thank you for joining us, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. We'll start on a from a macro perspective and then get into just some specific companies that you're interested in. But anyway, thanks for joining the, the podcast today. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be on the show and looking forward to your questions. So uh, we've actually been following Ian for a while now. He really writes interesting, well-thought-out pieces on under-the-radar companies, specifically uh, centered around although not exclusively, but really interesting companies in Latin and South America. But first, I really want to talk about what's going on in the markets right now. We've had a decade plus outperformance amongst growth-oriented names, the technology type companies, companies that really didn't even earn any money, but were growing revenues very rapidly. And that really, the top blew off of that in late 2020 and throughout 2021. And it came to a screeching halt in, in 2022 with some names dropping 70, 80, 90% plus that were the darlings post-COVID. And now the new darlings are oil companies, airports, materials companies, et cetera. So before we get into specific companies and maybe what's going on in Latin and South America, can you just describe at least from your perspective what's going on in markets today and how is this setting up for the future? Yeah, I think you summarized it very well in terms of from March 2020 onward, people were interested in all of the right tail possibilities, like what could be if everything, if all the disruption stories we heard came true, like how much could this company potentially be earning in 2030 or 2035? People didn't really care if, how plausible these stories were, like stuff like Nikola that in retrospect could have been easily determined to be frauds if anyone had done some research, but no one was doing any underwriting. It was just whatever, you could put anything in a SPAC or anything, <laughs> anything into a hot IPO and people would buy any of it. And so I think the real issue for investors was just trying to avoid the temptation, the, the fear of missing out. So like there were plenty of good companies selling at reasonable valuations, some in the US, a lot in Europe, some here in Latin America, but people just had to avoid getting caught up in the story of the month, how I'd put it. So in terms of comparison between what's going on today and maybe the first thing that comes to mind is 2000 to 2002 in that period in which there was a the previous technology bust. How would you mark the environment today compared to maybe what was going on back then? Yeah, so it's playing out pretty similarly. 
history doesn't repeat exactly, but it definitely rhymes. The market for the the worst quality dot com stocks peaked in March two thousand twenty. That's kind of when all your your pets dot com kind of stuff peaked, and the IPO window closed for new ventures. I'd say that we saw that similar peak in February of two thousand twenty one, where kind of the ARC stocks and the SPACs and the dog related coins and all those sorts of things <laughs> kind of started to peak in early two thousand twenty one. But the the high quality companies, which back then would be like your Microsoft, uh, Yahoo, Cisco, Lucent, all that kind of stuff kept going up or at least was flat until the beginning of 2021. It really took kind of a year for the market to roll over. And I think that's because like all these newer, the smaller companies, they start laying people off. Like you see like Peloton fires half their staff and obviously they're not buying stuff anymore. They don't need as many SaaS subscriptions for their workers. And so it takes kind of a few quarters for things to roll from where the weakest companies start giving up ground. Now you see somebody like Netflix that's going to cut billions in cost in their content. And so that's a bunch of seats on Adobe that go away because you don't need as many people doing uh, graphic design. And so like all this stuff, it just trickles down. And so I think we're kind of in that early 2000, mid 2001 stage where the real companies like the Fangs in this case are starting to see the, the effects. Like there's less advertising dollars out there now than there was 12 months ago. It's not like earnings aren't in decline yet for the big tech companies, but there's definitely deceleration. And investors care so much about the the year-over-year growth rates. And so I think that's why you're seeing the big change in the environment. So do you think that from a revision perspective, we haven't really seen major analyst or at least company revisions in earnings estimates. So you could see companies like a PayPal or a Google that on on the surface look like they're trading at, you know, let's call it 17, 18 times expected earnings. PayPal just cut their earnings estimates. We're jumping into companies, but we'll just go there. But at what point do you see the revision starting to come in and maybe what appears on the surface as an inexpensive, inexpensive stock uh, really start to show weakness in terms of expected earnings for you know, a year or two out? Or do you not see that at all? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question and something that people that cover tech full-time really need to answer and just not really my area of it. Something like Google looks, Alphabet, excuse me, looks very cheap on the numbers that are out there today, but I don't have 100% confidence that they'll hit those numbers. And if they only miss by 5 or 10%, you'll probably still do all right owning the stock. But stock was very well loved and things rarely stop at fair value on the way down. Like something that was overvalued and then it doesn't stop right at fair value. It'll tend to keep going until it gets pretty cheap because you need low prices to motivate value investors to come in and buy this from the, the momentum guys. And so, yeah, I think stuff like Meta or Google or even Amazon, I've been a big critic of Amazon, but even at this price, it's like, I, I can see the bull case for Amazon, but it's not cheap enough to force me out of the stuff I own elsewhere in the world. So if you offer it to me down another 20%, maybe I'll take another look. So can you focus on like the types of companies that you, and just in from a big picture standpoint, the types of industries and sectors that you follow and that you are in right now, and the story that those particular companies or industries presented from a valuation standpoint, when all this other money was chasing after the dog coins, like you mentioned, et cetera. Talk about what you're in right now, how it looked back then, and how does it look right now, prospectively? Yeah, so I prefer to try to focus the majority of my resources on companies that I would put in the compounder camp. And I guess that word's been overused and people are applying it to a lot of software companies that I wouldn't really use it on. Uh, but kind of just the sense that companies that can consistently grow their earnings, that have a wide moat in front of their business, 
things that make them less vulnerable during economic downturns. Like I really like consumer staples, which is kind of uh, not the most glamorous stocks in the world, but your beer and wine and chocolate and spices and that sort of stuff uh, tends to grow, at least with the global GDP, if not a little bit faster. There have been several good opportunities to buy those stocks over the past five years. I've bought a lot of those. I like assets that are hard to replace, something like airports, like you mentioned, where you effectively have a government-sanctioned monopoly to own an asset. At least in Latin America, those have been growing at three or four times population growth in the region. So very strong kind of asset you can own for long term. I like businesses that are kind of the leaders in very boring industries, something like Ecolab that I've been buying recently that does sanitation and hygiene and pollution control. I think they're only 10% of the total market, but they're three times larger than their next biggest competitor. And so that thing can keep growing at nine or 10% a year for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years before running into the law of large numbers. But it was owned by the same people that owned all the software stocks. And so it's gone down like 30% this year for no change in their business. It's just the same people that own too much meta and Netflix and everything are having to trim all their positions at the same time. Right. So your whole philosophy is basically to own positions that are unsexy, for lack of a better word, but have solid businesses and have moats that basically prevent competitors from uh, derailing that business model. Like you mentioned, state-sanctioned monopolies like airports in Latin America or in Europe, or what have you, or in those types of companies, conceivably, there's anything can happen at any given time, obviously, but they have a really big moat, and it's difficult for a competitor to derail those positions. That's right. Yeah, at least at the worst, if the business, if something starts going wrong with the business, your stock will generally be down 20%. You'll have a chance to realize what's going wrong, whereas like with Something like Netflix, by the time you figured out that their subscriber growth had rolled over, the stock was down 70%. So there was no exit ramp off of that one. If you were wrong, it was too late to leave. Those companies that you mentioned, what was the perception in the marketplace over the last five years? And how has that changed from a valuation standpoint? How has that changed? And how do things look going forward from a prospective return standpoint? Yeah, so a lot of those stocks that I like, they don't really fall in either the growth or the value camp because they're never screened cheaply enough to attract value investors. Like a lot of the time, they'll sell it like 25 to 30 times earnings, which people don't see as a value. And then maybe on growth, they grow at like 9 or 10% a year. And they always grow at that rate, but they never grow quite fast enough to attract growth investors. And so they're kind of in a weird category where people don't really, neither camp the pure value or pure growth guys are really drawn to them. So I'd say, yeah, in general, the valuations were not great, not not bad, but not great over the past few years. But uh, some stuff really went on sale during COVID. And then just over the past two or three months, a lot of stuff uh, has dropped 25, 30% kind of in my favorite hunting grounds. So there's some opportunities uh, showing up again. So Ian, you made this comment, and I don't know if you remember it, but I'm going to quote it because I think it's really interesting to speak about. This was October of 2021. You said, three strongly held beliefs. Number one, airports are the best growth industry this decade. Number two, EVs, electric vehicles are overblown. Your best Musk is getting long beauty products. And number three, people will arbitrage hyperinflation by moving to cheap, high quality of life countries, Colombia, Spain, Mexico. And I want to drive into each one of those points, because I think they're all really interesting to talk about. And first is airports, because the last decade has all been all been about re- really uh, internet disruption, social media, gaming, 
EVs, we'll get into that second. But why do you think airports are the best growth industry this decade? And what else are you looking for for the decade of the 2020s? Yeah, and thanks for bringing that up, though. It's quite a while ago, so I'm surprised you found that quote. So I appreciate it. At airports specifically, I think we're more in a time where people want to consume experiences rather than material goods. Obviously, COVID has kind of disrupted that to some degree, but now uh, kind of as we've been reopening, there's been incredible demand. I think you were talking about this with one of your guests in terms of live events are really coming back in a big way. I think people want to do stuff that is, is unique and also stuff that posts well on social media. And so going to someplace like a Mexican beach is a, a very good social media opportunity for a lot of people. Millennials are finally starting to get some real purchasing power. Like the job market has finally kind of turned in our favor. I'm not, I consider myself a millennial, but anyway, the job market's kind of, people are finally getting some real uh, wage increases, at least in my cohort of folks. And a lot of people are going international, traveling for the first time. You've got a long runway there. Uh, and speaking of runways, the discount airlines, at least in Latin America, have been crushing the legacy guys. And so prices have come way down. It's finally become affordable for like your average Brazilian or Mexican to get to fly, whereas they used to have to take buses. That continues to be a big demand driver here locally. Yeah, and unfortunately, right now, jet fuel is much too expensive. But I think longer term, we'll manage to figure that out. So. I think that people are too worried about that. Long term, the airlines have been uh, pretty good at figuring out ways to uh, stick people with more fees and keep the industry going. And speaking of jet fuel being expensive, that maybe we'll talk about fuel in general and the hype around EVs and why EVs were the next big thing 12 months ago. Let's talk about that particular market in general and maybe combustible engines as a counterbalance to the, the EV movement. Why are EVs overblown and what are you looking at as a counter to EVs as an investment opportunity? Yeah, I just don't see how we can possibly get all the infrastructure there in terms of batteries, in terms of rare metals, in terms of getting all the infrastructure set up. I mean, maybe you can get 1 billion people to switch to EVs in the US and Europe, but try traveling in India or China or, or here in South America and tell me how it's going to go in terms of trying to get everyone set up with smart chargers at home. Like our power grid is so unreliable where I am, like the idea that I'm going to, if I need my vehicle to like take my kid to the hospital or something and if my battery's out, then I can't drive. I mean, that's that's a non-starter. Right. Uh, look at where the, the resources, like you need all this cobalt that you can pretty much only get from Congo. The lithium's all coming from Bolivia and Chile. And obviously as a South American uh, investor, I love the idea of, of us having a global monopoly on the world's lithium supply, but that's not very tenable from a, either a national security or a pricing standpoint. Copper's already shot the roof and we've barely gotten started in terms of what renewals are like 5% of global power. You need so much copper and to go into every wind turbine, into every solar panel. It's, the scale, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, marginally, I think renewables have to grow and governments will keep funding them. But the idea that we're going to uh, to cut into petroleum usage meaningfully over the next 10 years is just not based in economics. I think if people traveled around outside the US, they would see how far-fetched this idea is. Right. Yeah. And I also, I love when governments come out and state that their mandate is that they'll shift to a fully renewable or at least a climate neutral policy by 2050 or 2060, like that has any sort of merit whatsoever. And it's just purely political speak at that point. But I think that's really interesting. And I think the last comment you made related to cheap, high quality of life countries is something that we're especially interested in talking about. And maybe describe your experience traveling and living around 
Latin, South American, why countries like this offer such a unique opportunity for people that are trying to escape higher cost of living countries like the United States. Yeah, so I've lived in Latin America full time since the beginning of 2014. I was kind of, uh, I'd saved up some money from the hedge fund and said I want to just go traveling, see the world. Ended up meeting who would become my wife. While I was traveling, she wanted to do a graduate degree, and uh, conveniently for us, Mexico gives free graduate degrees to anyone who can speak Spanish, pretty much. So we spent three years there, then we moved back to Colombia and got married here. So I've been full-time, almost coming up on eight years in Latin America. Yeah, and as I've been here, it kind of things got delayed a little bit with COVID, but I've run into more and more travelers who are looking to either base here part of the year, like during the winter, or full-time particularly now with teleworking with fast internet everywhere and companies realizing they don't need their workers in the office 24-7. The idea of getting a second home or an Airbnb or something next to the ski slopes in Chile or next to the beach here in Colombia is looking really interesting to folks when, I don't know, I'd say maybe to live well in Cartagena is maybe one-fifth of the cost of New York, I would estimate. I haven't been back to New York in a few years, so I'm not sure how much inflation has ravaged New York for since I've been there. But my guess is it's like five times as much probably for the same standard of living as here. And so I think people that are, maybe if you're working a software job that's paying, I don't know, $100,000 a year, and you can be kind of like upper class, but still struggling to buy an $800,000 cottage on the edge of town in, in the US, or you can buy a mansion here. I think a lot of people are, are going to make that choice. What's the quality of life? like in Colombia? I'd say for Americans that are kind of used to more, I think I heard on one of your, your podcasts to set low expectations and then try to exceed them. So I'd say if, if someone's moving to Colombia, set low expectations because this country is still fairly backwards in many regards. Somewhere like Argentina or Chile uh, or even Mexico. Mexico is a lot more Americanized. It's very easy to live in a suburb in Mexico and shop at Costco and eat at Buffalo Wild Wings. You can replicate a lot of the American experience for half price in Mexico if you want to, but Colombia is uh, a lot more insular, so you need to know Spanish to live here for one thing and be prepared for things to be more complicated compared to kind of a more Europeanized country like Argentina or Mexico. I know Colombia has developed, obviously, everybody knows the story around the 70s and 80s and 90s, etc., with the drug cartels. But recently, Colombia has been kind of a success story in terms of development. You've been there for four years. Have you seen this kind of firsthand? What's been your experience in this regards? Yeah, I'd say the country was really booming. The first time I visited here in 2014, things were going very well for the country. There were construction cranes everywhere, all the work help wanted signs everywhere. Things were really going well, but half the country's exports are oil. And so obviously oil going from 100 to 25 really put the economy into a tailspin. The government put through austerity, which made sense in terms of preserving their investment grade credit rating, but raising taxes at the same time that half of your exports were oil was not great. So the economy has kind of been in a bust uh, since I've lived here, but just over the last six months, everything's really revved up again. So Mm -hmm. fingers crossed. Our top three exports are coal, oil, and coffee. So obviously prices are through the moon on all three of those. How does the investment landscape look specifically from a big picture standpoint? And from your perspective, then there's macro trends that exist that I, I think are fascinating from a burgeoning middle class in all of Latin America. How do you look at this, Latin America specifically, and then from a microcosm, micro standpoint, Colombia, from an investment standpoint? 
Yeah, I think for most foreign investors, it's easier to focus on probably Mexico is by far the most liquid and stable market. It's pretty easy to trade like retail, like your interactive brokers and everywhere you can trade Mexico directly. And there's dozens of reasonably well capitalized liquid Mexican stocks. Chile is a good market, but it's not. I think you have to open an account in Chile to trade, which keeps most people out. And then kind of Argentina and Colombia and Peru are more regional. I think our stock market here in Colombia only has like 25 companies that are listed. There hadn't been a new listing in like six years. But we actually had an activist come in, a billionaire come in and uh, take a hostile, do a hostile takeover and drove one of our large holding companies that doubled in, in I think four months. Uh, I wrote about that or that one for our subscribers. And so that was nice to see. It's like the first time anyone's been interested in buying a Colombian equity in years. They're still pretty sleepy markets, uh, but obviously that could change. 2003 to 2005, the Colombian market was up 800% in three years. So. We'll see right. now that oil's up again. We'll see what happens. It looks like, uh, and I'm just looking throughout history, it looks like iShares launched an ETF to track the Colombian market in 2013. Uh, since then, $10,000 invested has translated to about a 50% decline in that ETF since inception. You mentioned the major exports being largely commodity-based, oil, coffee, etc., where do you see the the economy seems to be booming? What's your perspective on markets there on a go-forward basis? I was just going to add to that, that our major bank, which is called Ban Colombia, uh, ticker CIB, has been listed in New York since 1995. So that was $20, I think, at the IPO in 1995. It went down to $2 when like the whole continent default, like Argentina and Brazil and everybody defaulted in 2001. Then it went from 2 to 70 in 2013. And then it's gone from 70 back to like 30. So <laughs> the full uh, Latin American <laughs> experience. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems if you're looking, especially in the United States, any sort of major commodity producer or, or at least a, a company that's business model is based upon the sale of commodity-based products, those have seen a complete boom since January 1 of this year and not so much in Colombia. I mean, is this somewhere that investors should be looking right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's political risk. There's a presidential election. I'm not sure when this will be airing, but either just as you're about to hear this or just after. So fingers crossed until we know what happens with that. I'd say one thing that a lot of people should pay more attention to are the Mexican companies, because you can find companies that are much less cyclical there, like the airports. For example, I believe, I don't have the chart in front of me, but I believe Pacifico, ticker PAC, which owns the Guadalajara, Puerto Vallarta, Cabos, various airports, Tijuana. I believe that airport has produced a total return of 500% since 2008, whereas the Mexican EWW ETF is up like 40% over that time period. So like, even with their own Mexican exchange doing absolutely nothing, like the company, I mean, it was just growing EBITDA at like 12, 15% every year. And so... Even with a terrible local domestic stock market performance, those shares still worked. There's a lot of companies in Mexico. Like I've been investing in a water company. I don't know if you want individual names or not, but there's sure. yeah, a company called Rotoplas, R-O-T-O-P-L-A-S. That makes like water tanks, boilers, stuff to like drinking fountains, all that sort of stuff. And so it's just kind of the largest player in Latin America for making this sort of stuff. And it's kind of a boring industry, but they're the, the leader. They've grown pretty heavily into other countries lately. And management has come out and said that we're going to double our, our free cash flow margins. Like management has uh, gotten shaken up 
and said, we're going to start delivering shareholder value. I think this is the sort of thing that ESG investors will find. And there's not too much economic risk because people need their water tanks regardless of what the economy is doing. So I think people get this idea that like you invest in Latin America and you're just going to play the commodity casino. But I like trying to find ideas like the airports or like a water company, for example, where I'm not just making kind of a leverage bet on the price of copper or oil or whatever. Right. And I think what you're focused on is also incredibly interesting in terms of finding new markets to also find value where if you're looking at similar companies in the United States, the level of efficiency in those particular companies is just much higher. The analysis of those companies is just much higher that there's really difficulty extracting value because there's so many other people looking at the same thing that you are. You're finding things that are really sort of these stocks under rocks. And I, and I think that that's a, an interesting way to look at things, at least especially from your seat where you're actually in the thick of it and living down there and having experienced some of these products that, that some of these uh, companies that are producing. But in terms of on a go forward basis, one thing that I'm really interested in is the international versus domestic performance of markets and how the United States has really just been this behemoth in terms of rates of return, at least for the last decade. Do you view from a macro perspective when you're making your analysis of these companies, any sort of mean reversion between U.S. and international markets? Or are you just looking at companies specifically and, and trying to extract value that way? Yeah, I do think that the, the Latin American market should outperform. In particular, Mexico is kind of the one I've planted my flag on because that's a much broader market that is not just tied to commodities. And so I think investors will rediscover that one. I think I'm buying stuff at cheap enough prices that I don't need Mexico to go on a big bull market to get paid on my investments. But I think, I mean, if everyone's valuation goes up 50%, then obviously that's going to help the stuff I'm holding, regardless of whether or not my individual thesis on companies is right. Yeah, there's some like, like that water company I mentioned that I think that's a secular growth story that will work regardless of what Mexico is doing. But something like I own Walmart Mexico, which is much more just a bet on broad GDP growth in Walmart and their e-commerce business is much better than U.S. Walmart. And so something like that, it would be really nice if the Mexican stocks went up because I think it's the second largest holding in the Mexican index. And so to some degree, you're making an implicit bet on the exchange. But I think it's a quality company that's trading cheaper than you look at stuff like Costco in the U.S. that are going to absurd valuations just because people want safety at any price. Yeah. And so. Right. And you also have demographic changes in Mexico that don't exist in the United States that have already been realized in the United States. Yeah, that's right. We're kind of at the peak of, what is it, new family formation in Mexico. And kind of in 20 years, their population will start aging in the same way that the, the U.S. and European populations and all have. But they're kind of in the sweet spot in terms of having a large working age population for now. And then kind of they'll start getting older in a little bit. But I think that's kind of an underappreciated factor, uh, particularly now that immigration to the U.S. has declined considerably. For a while, the U.S. had been taking up so much of uh, younger Mexican working age population, but between the, the Trump era policies and COVID, kind of those migration flows have diminished. So there's a lot of labor force available in Mexico right now. How do you think about just flows of funds? And you mentioned the the water company in Mexico and how it uh, also has an ESG tilt to it. But as ESG, and, and for those who are unaware, that means environmental, social, and governance, governance and, and basically what ESG does is it tries to screen out companies that are poor, either affecting the environment poorly or have poor social policies or have poor board governance and management governance. And generally what's happened in that particular area of the market is that 
money has flowed to companies that have positive ESG metrics and away from companies with negative ESG metrics. And if you go down to like the endowment level or pension level, investment committees for endowments and pensions and other wealth managers can't even invest in areas of the market because of poor ESG metrics. So even if a company looks cheap on the surface, valuations may never get re-rated because of flows. And so how do you think about that from the, the perspective of an investor and saying, look, this looks cheap, but it may just stay cheap or get cheaper because of flows of funds? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, I think it's an uh, interesting point on ESG because I've highlighted a lot of anti-ESG investments, which I've enjoyed buying. Like I own a good chunk of the oil sands companies, which are obviously uninvestable in the ESG framework. But uh, the world still needs energy. And even if you believe that we're going to convert to renewables in, say, 2040, we still need oil for the next 18 years. And so some of those stocks are trading at like four or five times cash flow. I like those. I like the defense contractors. Obviously, I had no way of knowing what was going to happen this year. Very, very unfortunate why those stocks went up. I had a large position in Lockheed Martin last year, which was trading at 14 times earnings. And you basically have 7 to 8% revenue growth guaranteed from the government in terms of five or 10 year contracts. And so to me, it's silly that institutions would say that we're not going to build missiles or planes or stuff anymore. And then the moment that a war breaks out now, those same people that were saying that they would never invest in a defense company are putting up the Ukraine flags and saying, we need to send more defense aid to, to <laughs> over there. So it's like, you didn't want my Lockheed last year, but now now you certainly appreciate the, the social value. Yeah. And so I think to an extent, I kind of have a barbell approach. Right? I bought some of these anti-ESG names that I believe are unfairly cheap going around your question. But the, the key consideration is just can they fund with their own cash flows? Like as long as the company can grow without needing to tap the market for new money and preferably that they can pay me a dividend or buy back stock to support the valuation, then I don't mind if the stock stays cheap forever. That's how the tobacco stocks became like the biggest performers of the market from the 90s on because they were constantly trading at like eight to 10 times earnings and they just kept buying back their stock and paying large dividends. It's like if no one else is going to buy our stocks, then we'll buy them with our own cash flows. And so... Yeah, on the one end, I like owning some stocks that get ESG flows, like like your water companies. I own some utilities that I think will benefit from ESG flows. But then on the other end, I own some of the hated stocks just because I, I like cash flows as well. Yeah, I think I tend to tilt towards the hated ESG stocks as well, just because if you're generating 10% free cash flow yields and buying back stock and have a wide mode, I'm thinking about tobacco companies specifically here and either buy back stock or paying large dividends and just raise your prices every year because you have an addictive product, then it's a horrible product, but it turns out to be a great company. Yep, that's that's how I see it as well. Well, Ian, we're coming up on 30 minutes and uh, I want to say thank you for joining us today. One question I had just to close out is anybody traveling to Colombia, what are the your favorite things and your family's favorite things to do uh, for leisure down there? Okay, yeah, so probably my favorite place. It's a little bit off the beaten path, the adventure sports capital of the country, which would be in the Santander region. And the kind of the little town associated with it is called San Gil, S-A-N-G-I-L. And there you've got uh, bungee jumping and whitewater rafting and parasailing. And there's a big water park built on the edge of a cliff. And yeah, it's fun. There's a lot of stuff to do, I think. You guys have young families, so it's kind of a nice family. There's a lot of stuff of varying levels of intensity and stuff to do there. People like Medellin and like the beach and everything. Not really much to do in Bogota. Don't really go there unless you have business or something to do there. But 
a lot of good places to see in Columbia. Wonderful. Awesome. It's at the top of my list. Can't wait to get down there. I will have to meet up when you when you Yeah, for sure. I, I, the idea of Cartagena sounds awesome. <laughs> so Greg takes uh he has what two or three days a week of Spanish tutors. Mm-hmm. So he's going getting full good. yeah, full fledged into Spanish. Yeah. I think it's it's fascinating. I think it's just from the typical like leisure travel from the United States doesn't really look south. They look towards Europe or Asia. But I think there's just so much fascinating culture and things to do in cities, et cetera, south of the border and Mexico and Central America and South America. And so I think it's fascinating from a travel standpoint, from an investment standpoint, et cetera. And but yeah, I definitely want to go to Colombia. I've heard really awesome things. I just need to put in a quick plug for Cabos. I believe uh, Cabos, Mexico is the fastest growing tourist destination for Americans since the pandemic. I believe our traffic numbers are 130% of pre-COVID levels. So if you own Pacific or PAC shares, you've been enjoying the uh, mega boom in Mexican uh, transportation. I saw Cancun was that as well. Cancun was well in excess of 2019 numbers. And is that a Pacifico airport as well? No, that one's uh, Sureste, ASR. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a, well, there's a direct flight to Cancun from New Orleans now, so we, my wife and I took that earlier this year. The Mexican airports are just absolutely, and the resort towns are absolutely booming with American tourists. So anyway, well, Ian, thanks so much. I hope to have you back, and we'll continue reading. And just as a reminder, the name of Ian's blog, I guess you can call it, but it's on Seeking Alpha. It's uh, Ian's Insider Corner, and he writes prolifically and, uh, and interesting research on Seeking Alpha there. So thank you so much for joining me and appreciate the time. Thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.